But first, let's focus on this election campaign right now and the dramatic promise earlier this week by Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson to eliminate the provincial sales tax for a year and chop it down to 3% in year two of a COVID recovery plan. A lot of criticism of this plan, a lot of support for it too. Business seems to like it, but could a big cut in the provincial sales tax like that carve a huge hole in the provincial budget, maybe force dramatic government spending cuts? Let's talk about that now. What a great guest I've got for you. George Abbott, the former Liberal MLA, former Liberal Cabinet Minister. Very pleased to welcome him back to the show. George, thank you very much for coming on. A pleasure to be with you, Mike. Thank you. Okay. Uh, you were around, if we go back in the old political time machine here and go back to 2001, and when Gordon Campbell was elected as the new Liberal Premier of British Columbia, he promised and delivered a dramatic tax cut on his first day in office. And I know you remember that. You've written a brand new book about that and, and some of the spending cuts that it triggered. So I'm, I'm really interested in your perspective on this new promise from the Liberals for another big tax cut to the provincial sales tax. What are your thoughts on this? What went through your mind when you first heard that this week, that the Liberals would cut the PST, eliminate it for a year? Well, there's certainly a number of... Uh historical parallels uh, crossed my mind. Uh, in 2001, there was, of course, major cuts to personal income tax, to uh, corporate tax, uh, and other taxes uh, on investment and, and uh, machinery and so on. The, uh, the sum of that was a $2.2 billion revenue hit to, to government revenue streams. Uh, it was thought, it was believed at the time that cutting those taxes would produce rebound revenues and, and they would, as the saying went, pay for themselves. They did not. We ended up not only a $2.2 billion hole from, from tax cuts, but uh, an additional couple billion in the hole from just uh, general uh, loss of, of government revenues and, and uh, revenue from trade and so on. So that was a hole we had to fill by expenditure reductions. The the situation in 2020 is, uh, I think, a little bit different, uh, and I think is less promising even than in 2001, to take out in year one uh, by uh, eliminating the sales tax for a year about a $7 billion loss in provincial revenues, probably another four in year two. Uh, that's uh, 11 billion uh, relinquished by by government uh, without uh, an obvious uh, return to government and with I think questionable uh, efficacy as as a mode of stimulus uh, in the economy as well. Okay, let me play this for you. This is Andrew Wilkinson, the leader of the BC Liberal Party. He was on the show this week. We talked about this promise to eliminate the provincial sales tax. And uh, I just put it to him directly, the questions that you just raised, would you have to cut government spending to make up the difference? And here's what he said. There will be no cuts to health and education under BC Liberal government. Let's be crystal clear on that. I'm someone who's practiced medicine in hospitals all over British Columbia. I know what it means to fund a proper health care system, and that's what we're going to do. Okay, Wilkinson on the show this week. George Abbott, he says he will not cut government spending like the Liberals did so dramatically back in 2001. Are you saying you don't, you don't believe him? 
So uh, we need to take a little walk back in time here. Uh, In the 2001 campaign, uh, Gordon Campbell promised on behalf of the B.C. Liberals that there would be no cuts to health and education. In in a formal sense, in a sort of budgetary dollar-to-dollar sense, uh, we maintained that promise. But what it means when when health and education are protected or frozen or whatever language we want to use, it means that uh, the 30% of government that is not uh, health and education needs to find uh, dollars to make up any shortfall uh, where government demands that uh, a balanced budget be produced. Uh, obviously, there's no demand for balanced budget right now, and there probably right. won't be until COVID passes. Right. Uh, but uh, but that'll be a political narrative, perhaps in 2024, uh, or perhaps uh, later, uh, depending on how long COVID sticks around. But at some point, uh, there will be a demand uh, by at least one political party that balance, budgets be balanced. And it's at that point that closing the gap will become a real issue uh, across government. And well. Yep, go ahead. Well, well, wouldn't they close the gap by reinstituting the provincial sales tax? The way that this was rolled out by Wilkinson this week is that this would be a temporary measure to put money in people's pockets to stimulate the economy through COVID-19 relief, eliminate the tax for one year, chop it down to 3% in year two, and then presumably the tax goes back on. So wouldn't that make up the difference then? Uh, perhaps, uh, perhaps it will. Uh, there will be some stimulus effect uh, from the the sales tax reduction, without a doubt. Uh, but I think it is a poor uh, use of stimulus dollars uh, to try to do it that way. Uh, one thing we have to remember is that the uh, the tax comes off, and that's great. And maybe we buy a little bit more, although I'd argue that point as well. Uh, but the fact is that uh, a year or two out. Uh, the full ta- sales tax will be returned, and the reduction in stimulus will be approximately the same as as the stimulus produced here. Uh, I think we'd be ba- way better off to do stimulus spending in areas where we desperately need it, and I'd say addressing the symptoms of climate change uh, are, are one of those. Uh, we have a huge long way to go to better flood-proof and fire-proof communities across British Columbia, cities and towns and and villages across British Columbia. Washington, Oregon, California have just provided us with uh, uh, a really uh, compelling example of why we need to address this. Let's make use of those dollars. Let's not just relinquish them uh, for, for questionable gain. Okay, speaking to former Liberal Cabinet Minister George Abbott, he's criticizing the Liberals' promised reduction in the provincial sales tax, eliminating it for a year. George, this has uh, been popular with uh, business leaders in the province. They they like this idea uh, of cutting the sales tax to stimulate the economy. Let me play this for you. This is Muriel Protzer on yesterday's show. She is from the Canadian Federation for Independent Business, and they represent small business across Canada. They like this idea. Here's what she told me yesterday. Certainly, for the first and second years of this initiative, this will be a benefit to the economy. It will definitely encourage consumer spending and give businesses more financial flexibility to invest in their business. Now, PST is on nearly every item here from, you know, buying a new T-shirt, a pair of headphones. Uh, consumers pay the provincial sales tax on all of these items and so, so many more. So this is not only a benefit to consumers here, it will also help small businesses in the long term be able to reinvest into their business. Okay, business likes the idea, George. How come you don't? 
Well, uh, the first question I'd ask, Mike, is uh, are we in uh, the current uh, $13 billion deficit hole in British Columbia uh, as a consequence of weak consumer spending? Answer, uh, obviously not. We're in it because of COVID. We're in it because of loss of revenue streams to the government already, uh, expanded health care costs. Uh, that, those are the reasons why we're in it. It's not weak consumer spending. There may be, uh, you know, some uh, stimulus that's produced by by the the loss of the PST revenue, yeah. but it, but again, I think we're we're not buying things as uh, as a society because people have been stuck close to home for six months. They're being very careful with their dollars because they're not sure what the future holds for them, and and uh, I just I just don't believe that this is an effective use. Of ten billion dollars of uh, of revenue, okay. We we could do a lot of great stuff that that has very direct stimulus benefit uh, right. without doing this. Okay, last question for you. You're a, you're a former, very senior Liberal cabinet minister. You ran uh, a very vigorous campaign for the Liberal Party leadership. Uh, a lot of Liberals are listening right now, and I'm sure they'll be disappointed to hear you criticize this this key promise from the Liberal Party. Are you uh, are, are you no longer a member of the Liberal Party? You're not voting for them in this election. Well, I haven't made a decision on how I'm going to vote. I haven't been a member of the Liberal Party for several years. We had a falling out, as you may recall, over the question of the Chief Commissioner role at the B.C. Treaty Commission. Uh, I have not been uh, a Liberal for a number of years. Uh, People may be disappointed, but, you know, government is all about wise public policy. And uh, it's important that we debate uh, public policy. It's important that we arrive at public policies that produce the greatest benefit to to the uh, great society that we live in and frankly this is this is not uh, a well articulated well thought out piece of public policy okay george abbott thanks for coming on today well pleasure mike and thanks so much for inviting me on all right welcome back let's talk about the order from dr bonnie henry uh, to close down liquor service at 10 p.m this was an order that the public health officer made to check the continuing spread of COVID-19. Have a listen to this. Here is Dr. Bonnie Henry making that order. Liquor sales in all bars, pubs, and restaurants must cease at 10 p.m. and these venues must close at 11 p.m. unless they're providing full meal service, in which case the meal service can continue but not serve alcohol. Okay, this is a public order that has hurt a lot of businesses. Let me introduce you to one small business owner now, Rob Chizowski. He is the owner of the Bellevilles Pub just down the street from the legislature in Victoria. I'm pleased to welcome him to the show. Rob, thanks a lot for coming on. You're welcome. Okay, I appreciate it a lot. Uh, you're, you're, you run a kind of a famous little watering hole there near the legislature. Uh, a lot of political operators come in there for a drink and... I'll tell you what, if the walls could talk in there, you could probably write a, a best-selling book. But l- let me ask you about this, uh, this the impact of the 10 p.m. cutoff. First of all, let's talk about the COVID-19 pandemic and how it affected your pub. Like when it first hit, were you guys shut down for a while? How long were you shut yeah, down we, for? We, we, were, uh, we were shut down from March 17th until May 22nd. Right. And then you opened up under the new COVID-19 rules, right, with physical distancing? Yeah, physical distancing, it was uh, six feet apart for, for the tables, so it's also 50% seating. Right, and how did that work out for you? 
um, you know, we're we're certainly down. There's no doubt about that. It, it uh, it's been a it's been a tough summer, especially with no tourism as well. But you know, thank God we've got such a great local following that uh, you know that certainly did, did, has helped out tremendously for me. But uh, but definitely, it's it's uh, we've seen a big big decrease in sales compared to last year. There's no doubt about that. Okay, you're hanging on there. I know it's it's a popular spot for sure. What about this 10 p.m. cutoff now? This sort of came out of the blue. I know for a lot of pub owners in the province. What has been the impact for you and your business there with the 10 p.m. cutoff for serving alcohol? I, I think that's probably been the biggest uh, biggest blow that we've had so far. To be honest, is uh, you know we're down in the late night business. We we had a very very busy late night business, and you know we're down at least 30 to 40 percent uh, in sales. Um, total um, because of that and also immediately from there as well you know when, when you're losing you know two to four thousand bucks a day uh, it also goes into into the labor as well where we had to you know the next day we had to drop uh, what between 52 hours to 65 hours a day so we lost pretty well seven to eight full-time employees immediately okay that's a lot of people out of work there for sure do you think it's fair or reasonable? Because I know you were, you guys have been following the rules there for COVID nineteen distancing. And do you think it's fair for the the public health officer to come in and say we're going to bring the hammer down? You got to stop serving at ten o'clock. Well, what I don't understand with the whole thing is that you know, uh, if that's the case, why didn't why weren't anybody you know warned about it? Um, why didn't you know? Why weren't there fines put out? Um, you know, big fines put out. Then also, if you know, if it's if if it happens three times in COVID close a place that was that was uh, violating it it just makes no sense that there was no no pre-warning to any of this and you know they're just putting everybody you know in in the same boat uh the other thing is you know you, i think you've got you've got to be pretty naive if you think that you know all these younger kids that they're trying to keep off the streets after 10 o'clock are going to go straight home and that's where yeah. you know that's where that's where it's going to be with, with whether with, whether you're at home at a condo whether out in a park, that's where there's going to be, you know, no one, no one placing the, the, the social gatherings there. At least, you know, with, with, the, with the restaurants and pubs and lounges, that we can, we can at least police it. Um, it just makes no sense to me. Okay, that's an interesting point you raise about the enforcement, because the government has talked tough about bringing in large fines and penalties for people who do not follow the rules. Uh, to your knowledge, if there are any bars out there that are not following the rules, maybe they're packing in too many people in too close quarters, has there, has there been any fines brought down anywhere? Do you think it should be tougher enforcement, right, for the people who are breaking the rules? 100%. I know nobody, to be honest. And we, we, you know, we all know that there's people that aren't, aren't following the right protocols, but you know, they, they should come and step in on those. Uh, and, and I just think it's totally unfair that they haven't, they haven't enforced it better. And, you know, and the people that are really trying to do the right thing um, are, are getting penalized, you know, and people don't also understand how much, how many thousands of dollars that we had to, you know, add extra staff uh, to help sanitize. This is sanitizing solutions, et cetera, how much it's cost us. And, uh, and for them not to use this to, to blindside us, it just, it just was ridiculous. Right. Speaking to Rob Chazowski, he is the owner of Belleville's Pub just down the street from the uh, BC legislature in Victoria. Rob, what do you think would be a better idea? Bring heavy fines down on the people who break the rules? Absolutely. I think that's, yeah. uh, that's uh, you know, they've got to do that. You know, they've got to make an example of, of, of you know, of, of, of people that are, that are violating it. Uh, you know, yeah. I think that would, that would cure a lot of things. Uh, 
you know, but uh, the, the, the 10 o'clock, like I know in what, if I'm not mistaken, Ontario, they even went to 11 o'clock last call that I think would be much more reasonable and we kept a lot more jobs. But 10 o'clock is way too early. Um, you know, people aren't going to be going home. There's just no way. Okay, so you think they should extend it for an hour? So make the cutoff or make the serving cutoff 11 p.m. instead? That would make it much more reasonable. And I think then everybody could work around it. Okay, would that allow you to hire back some of your staff? Absolutely. Okay. okay. How is how has business been for you during this COVID nineteen pandemic? I know you mentioned that business was down overall. Do you find that people are are people drinking more? Are they drinking like harder harder liquor or anything like that as they sort of cope through this pandemic? My cocktail business has never been better, to be honest. My hard liquor has been just, it's never been better. It's outstanding. Uh, in fact, that, that's, the only, that's the only area that's up over last year. What do you think about this, um, the promise on the campaign trail here by the BC Liberals this week to eliminate the provincial sales tax for a year, chop it down to 3% in year two of a COVID recovery plan? Do you think that's a good idea as, as, a, as a guy running a pub? Oh, 100% with any business. I mean, you're saving, you know, you're saving the 7% immediately, and then, you know, you're going to save another 4% the, the following year. I think it's fantastic. I mean, how can you not look at that? Yeah. Okay. Do you think that bringing in these rules, the 10 p.m. cutoff across the board for the whole province, was maybe too heavy a hammer to bring down? Like, if you take a look at a city like Victoria, for example, where thankfully there's been there's been less COVID outbreaks and other parts of the province. I'm also thinking about northern British Columbia or the interior where there's a lot less COVID. Um, do you think they could have done a regional plan would have been better? That would have been great, you know. Um, yeah. But, it, like, again, I think where it all comes down to is they, I just didn't think it, was good. it didn't get enforced. There, there, there weren't yeah. enough fines put out. There was enough closures, and they didn't make that public. Um, you, know, that, you know, that's where, I, that's where I'm at. Um, but, uh, but it, it, you know, I mean... As I said previously, you know, I've lost seven, eight full-time employees. How about everybody else yeah. around, you know, around the province? How many people have they lost? So it, it's, just, it's just brutal. Rob, thanks for coming on today. You're very welcome. Have yourself a great day. I'm not going to answer the question Why because, you that because question? the you question is, the question Supreme is, the question left. will you who shut is up, man? Listen? Okay, all right. Yeah, that's what it was, just a little sample of the presidential debate last night between Donald Trump and Democratic nominee Joe Biden. It got down and dirty as expected, but maybe nastier than some people thought. It was really, really tough to listen to, I thought, during parts of it. Let's check in with Stephen Weldon now. He's a professor in political science at Simon Fraser University. He's been following this one for us. Hey, Stephen. Hey, Mike. Hey, thanks a lot for coming on. What did you What did you think of that debate last night? Was that like the worst debate you've ever seen? Uh, you know, I, I know that the, the media response has been that it was a, a bad debate, and it wasn't great, that's for sure, but, you know, it's... Uh, I didn't think it was that bad. I, 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 I think your my expectations for how it might go uh, with how Trump has behaved over the last four years. I, yeah, I'm not really that surprised. Yeah. What do you think Trump's strategy was going in there, or does he even have one? It just occurred to me that he's a kind of a chaos candidate, a chaos president who's kind of thrived on kind of muddying up the waters like this. And that appears to be what he tried to do again last night. Why is he doing that? Why is he so aggressive like that? That's a great question. I mean, I don't know why he's chosen to do that. Um, I think that it's not a very smart strategy. 
um, you know, it, a lot of people don't make decisions based on these debates. Uh, no. But if you were an undecided voter coming into this debate and you were watching this, yeah. uh, I find it difficult to see where you would find some support for Donald Trump. I mean, the things that he scores lowest on for voters, things like the handling of the coronavirus pandemic, uh, concern about um, uh, racism and so-called law and order. Now, he did okay. I think that was his, if, if, the, if you were looking for a strong point, it maybe was the discussion of law and order. But right. you can't leave this debate and think, you know, his comments about the white supremacist group Proud Boys and think that that was persuasive to a voter that was undecided. Was that energizing for people who were already in his corner? Probably. Uh, but is that enough to win the election? No. And and Trump came into this election, into this debate, you know, down quite a bit. Um, Republicans, according to surveys, are 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 in big trouble. Not just in terms of, of of Trump, but also in terms of the Senate races that are occurring. And it's hard to see where um, the Republicans are better off today than they were yesterday. Okay, speaking of that white supremacy exchange there, that was maybe kind of the most notorious part of the whole thing last night. Let's have a little listen to that right now. Number three on your rundown there, Tim. And here is Trump, and he's asked, are you willing to condemn white supremacists? I think it'd be a pretty easy question to answer. Here's how it went. Stand back and stand by, but I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, Somebody's got to do something about Antifa and the left because this is not a right his wing own, problem. This is, this is a left wing. This is a left wing. White supremacist. Antifa is an idea, not an organization. Oh, you got it. Not malicious. Okay, Proud Boys, stand back and stand by. That was uh, really kind of shocked a lot of people last night, Professor Weldon. Okay, who are these Proud Boys, and what did you think of Trump calling them out there? Uh, they're a uh, white supremacist group who have um, have said that they intend to help. Um, well, they speak to to white identity and white power, and they've also sort of taken on a role where they uh, are happy to act as citizen soldiers or uh, to yeah. help protect the election. I guess of some sort. Um, yeah. They're kind of street street fighters, uh, classified by the FBI as an extremist group, banned from most social media platforms because of hate speech. So it was. I thought when Trump was asked that question last night, "Do you condemn white supremacists?" I thought, "What? What a gift question for Trump!" Now he could just he can make a clear condemnation of white supremacy. So I thought that was actually an easy question for Trump, but he turned it around into into something else. So I'm just, I'm, what is he trying to accomplish here? Like you said, maybe this is kind of a shout out to his base, but I mean, his base are going to stick with him no matter what. So how do you get the undecideds? Isn't that what this is supposed to be about? You got to try and get the undecideds over to your side. Yes. I mean, and that's why I say that I don't think that, you know, it's hard to see where Trump did well. I mean, that is a softball question. Uh, right, if he right. simply condemns it, it's not like he's going to lose any support. But by failing to condemn it, um, you know, when, like we said, we were talking, what you're saying, um, you know, about the undecided voters, it's it's difficult. And now this is the line that's being played all over the media this morning and last night. Um, that's kind of the takeaway. And in this moment, it just doesn't seem 
like it was a smart strategy. And the other aspect of it, so a debate is about two things. It is about persuading voters, but it's also about mobilizing your supporters to go out and vote. Right. And so, yeah, I think the other kind of critical mistake that Trump made is, which is, is, is very concerning for democracy itself, is his refusal to accept the results, a smooth transition of power, if he were to lose, and so on and so forth. I mean, on the one hand, that that's certainly uh, concerning from the quality of democracy and uh, our expectations for that. But it also sends a message to his supporters that, hey, it doesn't really matter what happens here. I'm going to fight this. Uh, that's not a good message for him. You know, I, I, I'm sure that all major candidates would, would fight on, you know, contested issues in an election. But to send the message to your supporters that you're going to contest them regardless right um also send a sends a message that hey maybe you don't really need to vote right right okay speaking to professor stephen weldon uh political science prof at simon fraser university let's talk a little bit about trump's tax returns here in the new york times report that there were many years when trump did not pay any federal income taxes at all that in the in a couple of years he paid 750 dollars in taxes of course this came up in the debate last night let's have a listen and You're the, the worst way, you president vice, America has ever had. Hey, hey, Come Joe, on. Let me, let me just tell you, Joe, I've done more in in 47 months. I've done more than you've done in 47 years, Joe. Okay, that was an exchange between him and Biden. What did you think of that that exchange there? Or, well, let me, let me ask you, first of all, about the tax issue. Is this hurt, does this hurt Trump? Um, not a, I don't think it hurts him as much as you would think. I, it seems like an issue that's been sort of played out in the media for the last four to five years. Um, you know, people have already heard this. They, you know, you're either telling yourself that, hey, um, you know, Trump lost money and then he claimed, you know, tax credits. He's done this within the law um, or, you know, yeah, no one wants to pay taxes. That's, you know, his strategy of, of you know, being a smart business person. You know, I think that, that that's not an issue that is really new to voters in a way that's going to affect the election significantly. Okay, what about the, we had two more of these debates coming up. Um, there was some thought last night, I heard some Democrats saying maybe Biden should just refuse to debate Trump again after what happened last night. But the Biden campaign has already made it clear that won't happen. Biden will be there for the next two debates. After what happened last night, do you think there should be some rule changes on how these debates are managed? Like maybe they need a kill switch on the mic if uh, if they try to if either candidate tries to break the rules, but particularly Trump, who just kept interrupting, turn maybe turn his mic off. What do you think? Um, yeah, I mean, I think if you're turning in, tuning into this debate, you want to hear a discussion about the issues from each of the candidates, and I think a kill. You know, a kill switch is one way to do that, right? It, it, it makes sure that one candidate can talk uninterrupted. Um, I, I don't think it's a, a panacea to these problems. It also kind of opens up an opportunity. It, it, it stunts like normal human conversation, right? Which is, uh, we're not there. They're not there just to give speeches. They're also there to kind of interact with one another. Um, you know, in, and that requires, I guess, to some extent, some proper decorum. Uh, and respect for that debate structure. And so, um, you know, look, I, I think at this point you could say, sure, you know, we, we need a kill mic switch to, to pre- prevent them from talking over one another, interrupting. Um, but, 
you know, you can also see why people are saying, like, you know, Biden shouldn't participate in these debates anymore. They, that how, how are you going to be able to stop this? And then there's also the issue that, you know, the campaigns negotiate how the structure of these debates is going to go with the president uh, electoral commission well in advance. So yeah. changing it at this stage is unlikely. Okay. You mentioned earlier the, the possibility of Trump refusing to concede power if he loses the election. What is he signaling there? Does, could this end up in a huge legal fight, maybe at the state level? Maybe it goes all the way to the Supreme Court if the results are close. And I think even if the, the results are not close, Trump is going to say it's a rigged election and, and contest it. Where does that lead to now? Does that lead to some sort of constitutional crisis or a big court case? Yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes, it does. Um, yeah. You know, it, it, it's, it's really a complex issue. Uh, there's an interesting article in The Atlantic that kind of walks through these different scenarios. And uh, if you're really interested in this, I, you know, people should take a look at that article. But basically, you know, you have issues about the Senate being responsible uh, for selecting the vice president, the House being selected for is for selecting the pre- president in a kind of contested situation. Uh, you have the fact that the vice president, current vice president, is the, you know, is the sitting uh, uh, judge basically on the, on the Senate who runs this. Um, it's it's a it would it's a potential mess and it's it's amazing in some ways when you think to yourself uh, has has democracy in the U.S. for this long just like run on norms rather than laws and yeah in some ways that's that that's true and so you know I think that uh, it is a serious issue I think though that there's significant risk to Trump I think there's the the you know it's acceptable I guess for him to go within the legal channels. Right. Um, uh, of contesting it, but at some point there's significant risk to him um, to fight it. And maybe what he's looking for is some sort of negotiated exit uh, where mm. he's granted uh, a pardon or immunity. Uh, and that wow. that's, has to be something that's more important to him um, ultimately than an uncertain outcome uh, of the election okay. itself. Okay, last question for you, Professor Weldon. The sort of the popular analysis that I've been seeing is that Trump did poorly last night, that he was too aggressive and too bullying with, with Biden, and, and maybe this hurts him. Maybe it costs him a point or two in the opinion polls, but I don't know. Sometimes I get a feeling of deja vu as I'm watching this thing, because I remember in the, in the last election versus Hillary Clinton, everyone was saying Trump had no chance, Hillary Clinton was a lock to win, and of course it didn't work out that way. When you take a look at the, the political landscape in America right now, is there still a path to victory for Trump here? Could he win? Uh, yeah, I mean, he could yeah. certainly still win. I mean, his biggest chance here is that there's a systematic polling, polling error. Uh, which is undercounting support for him. That that's his yeah. best shot. Uh, as so so-called shy Tory or shy conservative voters. Um, but you know the when you there are a lot of differences between this election and 2016. There are many much fewer undecided voters. <coughs> excuse me, uh, and the lead for Biden is much larger than it was for Clinton, and. Uh, you know, all of those things make it much harder for Trump. And you can even right. sense this in how Trump talks about the election. Like, why would you, yeah. if you thought you were winning, why would you be spending all this time talking about how I'm going to contest this fraudulent right. election, right? So he obviously has a sense of that. Okay. Um, so, yeah. Thanks for coming on.
Thanks for having me. All right, welcome back to the school, uh, the show. If you've got kids in public school, you may have got an email from your school asking you to send your child to school today in an orange shirt. Today is Orange Shirt Day. Let's talk about that now with my guest, Jerome Beauchamp. He is the president of Orange Shirt Society. Hi, Jerome. Hey, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for coming on. What is Orange Shirt Day? Can you explain that to our listeners? Absolutely. Uh, so Orange Shirt Day uh, came from um, the story told by a survivor, Phyllis Webstad, um, in 2013. And uh, basically it was about uh, her very first day in residential school uh, up here in Williams Lake and uh, um, how her orange shirt uh, that she was so proud of and wore to school that day was taken away from her as soon as she got there and uh, exchanged for the the regular kind of uniform of the school at the time. And she never, ever did see that shirt again. So it's a, it's a, it's a story that kind of uh, caught people's hearts and got people thinking about residential school and started, you know, getting people to wonder about what happened in residential schools and why did these kinds of things happen? And then it's kind of morphed into, you know, what can we do to uh, work towards reconciliation towards helping um, all Canadians uh, have a better understanding of it and, and a, a bigger opportunity to work together with each other towards reconciliation. Yeah, it's a really moving story, and uh, it goes back to Phyllis Webstad. Uh, you described the story there, Jerome. She was six years old at the time, and this happened, I believe it was in the early 1970s that that happened, yes. right? Yes, in 1973, so not right. very long ago. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. I think maybe some people might be surprised to know that residential schools were still around in the 70s. Yeah, and in, in actual fact, the, the very last residential school closed in 1997, so wow. not long ago yeah. at all. And uh, the one here in Williams Lake closed in 1981, so wow. really not very long ago. Okay, this really. When did this really take off as kind of the, the orange shirt day to sort of raise awareness mm. and under an understanding about the experience of Indigenous kids in uh, taken yeah. away to residential schools? When did that start? Well, in 2013, the um, Truth and Reconciliation Commission had a conference here, and we're kind of uh, recording and collecting survivor stories uh, during that time, and and, and as part of that event we uh, had a commemoration of um, some monuments uh, to kind of remember the uh, residential school here and to to kind of uh, you know move forward from that legacy and during that commemoration is when Phyllis told her story um, so we decided at that time that it was such a moving story that we would uh, do a local event the following year and uh, you know have People wear orange shirts and just more of a support to Phyllis than anything. Yeah. Um, and from there, it just uh, went viral. Um, I mean, we're, we're, what, seven years later now, and it's uh, all across Canada. Uh, today on Orange Shirt Day, the um, uh, National Center for Truth and Reconciliation is doing a virtual um, video series uh, for students across Canada. There's you know, probably somewhere around a half a million students participating today, and that that all happened in seven years uh, yeah. from this story. So, yeah, well, that's amazing. That really did take off. I know my my son's school is celebrate is observing Orange Shirt t- today. He wore an orange shirt to school today, and 
lots of kids, thousands of kids will be doing that today all, all across uh, Canada, as you mentioned. You, you told the story there about how this all started uh, with Phyllis Webstad. Is she, uh, do you know her? Yes. Yeah, I'm the president of the society, and so yes, she's works with me um, each each uh, day in the, in that capacity. So, mm-hmm. what has that uh, been so like? The, what has that been like for her? Uh, quite a whirlwind. She's uh, been doing speaking engagements across the country for uh, a number of years now, and so she's engaged in you know conversations all the time. Um, you know. Uh, Today, she's working with a number of different groups as well, and it goes all throughout the year. We have um, on our InShirt Facebook page, we get hundreds of thousands of hits in the month of September and uh, throughout the year, and, you know, the website as well. It's uh, pretty crazy, but it's so (laughs) exciting to to kind of see what's what's happening across the country, just in terms of people uh, learning more about residential school, and that's what the... National Center um, video series was about today was just helping kids to understand more about what happened in residential schools, but also right. what they could do to move forward from that. So uh, that's pretty exciting for us at the society because that's kind of what we're what we're trying to achieve across the country. Right. Jerome Beauchamp is my guest. He's the president of the Orange Shirt Society. Today is Orange Shirt Day at BC Schools. Why is it important to raise awareness about this issue, would you say? Well, I think uh, if we're ever going to reach reconciliation where all Canadians can work together, um, you know, without, without uh, seeing race, without uh, having race issues, then we need to understand what happened to Indigenous people in our country, and we need to be able to move forward together uh, to a better place. And I think that's, that's why it's so important today. Um, the other piece is that, you know, what happened to people in residential schools, you know, right from the 1860s till, you know, 1997, what happened to them there didn't just happen to them, their children, their grandchildren, and so on, um, are also feeling the effects of that. And so that's where the Every Child Matters slogan came from, is that it's not just about the people that were in residential school, but it's still affecting young people today. And we have to remember that, and we have to support those students and help them to move forward, too. Yeah, well, it certainly has been a big success in, in raising awareness about this important issue. If people want more information, do you, got, do you guys have a website you can uh, recommend? Yes, uh, our own, which is orangeshirtday.org. It's all orangeshirtday is all one word, .org. Uh, there's lots of information there. Um, and, you know, because of today, uh, the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation website has a ton of information. And we're always updating our website with links and um, other pieces of information to connect people with other things that are happening around the country that would help them. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me. That's awesome. a really good opportunity. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the COVID-19 pandemic now and the impact on frontline healthcare workers and especially nurses. It's had a major impact on nurses in our province. Rising reports of burnout, anxiety, depression. Have a listen to this now. This is Christine Sorensen. She is the president of the Nurses Union. Uh, here she is speaking uh, uh, to Jill Bennett yesterday. I do hear from nurses. I utilizing their sick time to take time off, but they're also utilizing that time because they've either been identified as a contact 
to somebody who has COVID, so an exposure. They have family members, children, spouses that now have to stay home, and they're they're having to stay home um, with them. And so it is adding more stress to nurses' uh, work-life balance. Okay, that's Christine Sorensen, head of the Nurses' Union. Yeah, one of the key concerns there is the fear of nurses getting COVID-19 at work and potentially bringing it home to their families. And let's talk about a brand new study and survey that's been done on this issue. The survey was conducted by the University of BC School of Nursing. It was funded by the Nurses' Union. Very pleased to welcome the uh, head researcher for this uh, for the survey, Farinars Hawaii, and I'm very pleased to welcome her. Hi. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you very much for being here. What did you find out in your survey? So I think um, the most significant finding was that we essentially saw a 10% increase in prevalence of uh, mental, mental health problems like anxiety, depression, and emotional exhaustion, which is essentially, essentially a very core component of burnout. So this 10% increase is equivalent to about 5,000 additional nurses experiencing these mental health problems within the span of six months um, from our baseline survey that was conducted in December of 2019. Right. What is causing that? Is it more anxiety about the pandemic? Absolutely. Anxiety about the pandemic and also, as Christine said, you know, um, there was quite a bit of uncertainty in terms of, you know, living situation of nurses, like caring for the children, caring for their loved ones, and also uncertainty in their workplace in terms of an effective pandemic management plan early on and access to resources and supplies like uh, personal protective equipment. Yeah, do nurses, what do nurses report in your survey they're fearful of getting COVID-19 on the job? Absolutely, about, uh, it was really an overwhelming majority of them, about um, 85% of them said that they were concerned about contracting COVID-19 or endangering their loved ones by taking the virus home. Yeah, no, that's really, those are some troubling numbers there for sure. I mean, when you report the uh, rising levels of depression and anxiety, would this be like clinically diagnosed depression or are these uh, nurses just reporting how they're feeling? I mean, how do you quantify that? So we essentially used validated measures of anxiety um, and depression. So these are instruments that have been used internationally psychometrically validated and so um, they're essentially used some cutoff scores to identify those that met the criteria for clinical anxiety and depression. Yeah, okay, interesting. What about, um, you mentioned personal protective equipment, for example, or inadequate staffing. I think it's understandable that anyone who's a frontline healthcare worker would be worried during these times, but when it comes to nurses who are staffing hospitals and, and other critical care centers, uh, did are they reporting that they're worried about what there's not enough staff uh, on duty there's not enough personal protective equipment to protect nurses what are you hearing absolutely our numbers are staggering about um, 52 percent of our respondents essentially indicated that staffing was inadequate uh, three months after the pandemic in their workplace and about um, between 40 to 50% of our respondents also, um, um, you know, talked about issues around a number of uh, PPE as well as the quality of the PPE that they had access to in their workplace. Okay. Of course, when you speak to the government, they'll say, well, they've got 
a plan to make sure there's plenty of masks and ga- surgical gowns and everything to go around to, to protect frontline healthcare workers. So is there kind of um, a disconnect between the health ministry that's telling us everything is okay and nurses who are feeling on the front lines that maybe it's not okay? I think the situation here is around timing. So, you know, with timing, the government has been sort of developing a more solid pandemic management plan. The component of that, you know, being um, able to secure sufficient access to PPEs. And so we conducted our survey in June, which was, you know, about three months after the start of the pandemic. So I think with, um, as time is passing, we're essentially able to work together, you know, researchers, policymakers, um, everybody, the BC Nurses Union, to essentially address some of these gaps in practice. Speaking to Farinars Harvai, she's a professor at UBC School of Nursing. Let's have another listen to Christine Sorensen. She's the president of the BC Nurses Union, and here she is speaking to our own Jill Bennett yesterday on what she's hearing from the front lines. What I also hear from nurses, though, is they're very committed to the surgical restart plan uh, that the government announced and making sure that people get the care they need in a timely fashion. So many people have foregone uh, vacations, uh, their vacation break time and relief time. Uh, and so they are working um, really on uh, on their last little bit of energy to try to ensure that we can meet patient care needs. Okay, the president of the nurses union there. I got a lot of respect for nurses on the front lines during this pandemic. I've got nurses in my own my own family, so I I, I know how this uh, impacts people on the front lines. You heard the the president of the nurses union there describe that uh, nurses are still doing their jobs, coming to work. Uh, they're on board with the restart of of surgeries, for example. Are you hearing about any kind of absenteeism or any nurses getting sick and not coming to work or if or if or if they really burn out uh can they take time off or are nurses still showing up for work mostly absolutely we know there is some uh, you know preliminary evidence that essentially shows that there has been some level of absenteeism as well as overtime especially early on because we were simply not as prepared to deal with the situation. Um, And I mean, you asked about whether or not nurses can actually take time off work to deal with their, you know, mental health needs. And, you know, um, there are certainly policies um, in place, but given the circumstances around nursing staff uh, shortages uh, that are existing, I'm, you know, really concerned about the impact of that on um, uh, patient care. Yeah, for sure. I mean, if nurses are feeling this way, if we, if we are seeing some nurses going off the job because of for mental health reasons and there's, there's a shortage of uh, nursing, nurses on staff, obviously those are all big pressing concerns. What is the, what should be done? What can be done to address this? I mean, do nurses need more access to, to care and therapy themselves? Absolutely. I mean, there are, so many things, in my opinion, that can be done. And the most important thing is that, you know, we need to be essentially thinking of nurses' needs. What are those factors in their work environment that essentially enable um, nurses to provide quality and safe patient care? And to do that, you know, using research evidence and in collaboration with multiple uh, stakeholder groups like researchers, like the BC Nurses Union, like the frontline nurses, policymakers, everybody joining forces to essentially yeah. establish scientific evidence required to enhance nurses' ability to provide effective patient care. 
Interesting survey. Thanks a lot for coming on to talk about it today. Thank you for having me.